Welcome to the Free Speak Podcast. Hello there. My name is Graham Hopwood. Um, I'm an executive director of the Institute for Public Policy Research in, in Namibia, but uh, also I've been a journalist for a number of years and worked um, alongside Gwen Lister, who I'm going to speak to in a moment, um, for about 12 years, I think. Um, and Gwen has recently published her um, autobiography um, called Comrade Editor. I'm going to talk to her, unfortunately, via phone because of the difficult COVID situation in Namibia at the moment. Uh, about the book and uh, about what uh, inspired her and uh, the key historical um, aspects of the book as well. Hi, Gwen. Um, it's about uh, two weeks since Comrade Editor, your autobiography was uh, published and released, um, and you've been doing quite a bit of media work and uh, online work since then. Um, how has the reaction been so far, and uh, you know what are people saying ab about the book? Well, Graham, so far, um, not that much reaction has come in. There have been a couple of comments from people who've read it. I haven't noticed if there have been any reviews done here or in South Africa or anywhere else. But I do know that um, Murray Levita of the Burger newspaper in South Africa did a fairly extensive interview uh, with me and got some fairly negative uh, comments back from the old sort of Africana establishment, which is probably no surprise, saying that I had kind of done what I'd done for reward and so on. Clearly, they haven't read the book because then they would see that, in fact, I was offered reward, if that's the right word, but turned it down. So, so far, I think a lot more reaction still has to come in as people get access to and read the book. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, that, that old white establishment that uh, goes back 30, 40, 50 years uh, is still around and reacting, because um, that leads up me on to my first question, which is, you know, you, you were born in South Africa and, and spent your early years there. And I mean, in a time when very few white people aligned themselves with, with the struggle against apartheid and against colonialism. Um, and I, I guess reading the book that you're bringing wasn't too different from, from many uh, white families in South Africa at the time. Um, so I wondered what were the key turning points um, that you cover in the book in terms of what made you aware of apartheid and decide to become an activist rather than um, you know, a bystander, as many uh, whites were in South Africa, people who probably realized apartheid was wrong but didn't do anything about it. And the others, of course, who were actively uh, involved in supporting the apartheid system. What were the turning points for you? Graham, you know, it's a good question because, and it's something, you know, I've dug really deep about um, in the writing of this book and, and in my life in general, um, actually. And uh, it's very difficult to establish exactly when I became aware of apartheid and how really shocking it was. Um, but I know it was at a fairly young age that I became conscious of it. Um, I do mention in the book a couple of incidents, you know, walking as a young child with my mother and seeing, you know, elderly black people have to kind of step off the pavement into the road as sort of obnoxious whites walked straight into them. So that consciousness, I think, was born very early on. Um, and then also a number of seminal moments, I think, um, in my teens, I also cite the example of, of buses in those days, public transport, which was segregated and having to get on a bus um, as a young white scholar and sit down at the bottom of the bus and seeing an elderly black lady get on 
and then um, couldn't make it up the steps to the top section of the bus, and so I gave her my seat. And the whole white group in the bus itself erupted in anger at what I'd done. Uh, so there were a number of, of, of moments like that. My daughter called it my aha moment that, that really galvanized me into thinking whatever I do in life, it has to be something that will try and change this horrible system that we're living under. I think one of the key features of the book for me is um, the way that you describe and, uh, and go into detail about various key personalities who were around uh, before independence in particular. I mean, obviously, one dominant figure in various parts of the book is Smitty or Hannes Smith, um, the former editor of the Windhoek Advertiser and the Windhoek observer. Um, but one other figure who, who features uh, you know, at various points and probably the most significant um, personality in recent or modern Namibian history is Sam Nioma. Um, he's obviously still alive and um, he's now 92, um, but having having been out of power for, for more than 15 years. I just wondered as a as a character in the book and um, as somebody who later became quite critical of, of the Namibian and actually in some ways took actions to undermine it when post-independence. How do you view Neoma now and um, uh, you know what were his best attributes but also what were his weaknesses? Right. Um, I think, you know, as you rightly point out, like Smitty, who was an editor I worked with uh, in my early days in journalism and, and for quite a number of years thereafter, um, the sort of highs and the lows of working with Smitty. Uh, equally speaking, I think it's true to say that, that Sam Nyoma loomed large in my life. Um, prior to independence, as you probably know, uh, like Smitty, he loomed large in my life. Um, as a young journalist, um, I quickly earned his trust, uh, I think because of my progressive reporting on the liberation movement and what was happening in Namibia. And I think he saw very clearly that I was a person who really believed in change as far as apartheid and, of course, the, the domination of, of then Southwest Africa was concerned by the apartheid authorities. So that was a good relationship. Um, and then, of course, as you mentioned, post-independence, um, there was quite a bit of fallout when uh, the Namibian, which stuck to its sort of independent stance, post-1985 when it when it started, and especially after independence, uh, started to hold the Swapo government to account. Um, and this was not uh, perceived in a very positive light by, among others, Nyoma. We criticized him on a number of aspects from human rights regarding um, gay rights, for example. We also criticized the incursion into the Congo, to prop up uh, Laurent Kabila. There were a number of issues where we kind of held the government to account. And slowly but surely, Nyoma turned against us. And that, of course, culminated in 2001 in the sort of ban of the Namibian, if that's the right word, uh, where government decided not to advertise in the paper, neither would they purchase copies. And then, of course, after that, there was a period of, of, of a couple of decades where um, Nyoma and I were really estranged from each other. But in some ways, I think it was a kind of rapprochement. And again, I deal with that in the book when earlier this year, when he was diagnosed with COVID and was in Medicity and Vintuk, 
um, that uh, President Hager Geingob actually asked me to accompany him to see uh, the founding president. And, you know, we shared a couple of laughs. And in a way, I think it was really nice to be able to bring things to a close. Um, not a complete uh, getting together. I suspect we'd always differ on a number of crucial issues. But at the same time, I think, in a sense, it was it was good for me and good for him that we actually had that meeting eventually. The, the book, um, you know, is a way, in a way, is an account of the internal struggle, uh, you know, in Namibia against apartheid and the South African occupation. Um, and in some ways, obviously, that 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 is that story of the internal struggle has been overlooked. And uh, when there is a focus on recent Namibia history, it's often on the exile, um, in the people who were in exile and what happened in exile. Although, of course, there are areas there, such as the detainees saga, that haven't properly ever been accounted for. But um, you know, in general, um, you know, who are the other sort of key people? Uh, particularly before independence, who um, actually were quite significant historically, but maybe have been overlooked and forgotten. But you do you do feature quite a, a number of them in the book. Yeah, and Graham, it's a, it's an important question as well, and one unfortunately, uh, you make mention of that sort of tension, if you like, between internal and external swapper, which was very palpable um, in those days in many ways. But unfortunately, and I must chip in here and say that you were one of the very few people to have read the unexpurgated um, version of this book because, as you know, it was edited down by, by almost half at the end, and there was a lot more detail um, on this particular issue that unfortunately had to go out. Hopefully, though, it'll, it'll give me opportunity to follow up if I still have another book in me going forward. But yes, there were I think many unsung heroes and heroines of of the Namibian struggle, and many of them were ordinary people. But naming names, um, you know, I think of people like Victor and Kandi, who of course received the death penalty. He kind of disappeared. There's nothing said about him these days, you know. And even the Shafidis, Emmanuel Shafidi, who was killed on a, on a dusty field in Katatura. Uh, by the South African uh, security forces. People like them are seem to be unlauded in Namibian history. And so I do hope, I couldn't go into that much detail in this book because, of course, there are three clear strands, which is my own personal sort of life story as well as the story of journalism and, of course, the birth of our nation. But But I'm hoping that a lot of those people that I've mentioned will find their right of, rightful place in history going forward. Um, yes, you mentioned the earlier version of the book, which I saw and read, which I think was probably a, about twice as long as the published version. Absolutely. Uh, and it is a real shame that publishers these days don't seem to think that readers can can handle longer books. But hopefully you'll, you will have a chance to bring out some of those aspects in, in other ways, either articles or, or a book in the future. Um, but I just wanted to go back to the founding of the Namibian in 1985, um, and which itself was a struggle, and you had to react to the um, end of the Windock Observer in terms of uh, your role there. And then, of course, the Namibian, you know, particularly in the five years up to independence and just after, actually, went through um, a number of traumatic episodes, um, you know, including firebombings, 
your imprisonment and the harassment and uh, intimidation of yourself, but also others working for the newspaper as well. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm presuming that took a personal toll. And, um, you know, these days we hear a lot about young people complaining about anxiety and, uh, you know, issues that they do face, um, trauma, which, you know, are real. But um, I just wondered, you know, how, how you and the newspaper got through that period and also, um, you know, where you found the resilience, which is something I think we all need at the moment, particularly in, in light of COVID, um, to really um, be able to not just survive, but to be able to do what you needed to do uh, in terms of uh, the newspaper's role. Absolutely, Graham. And, you know, it was interesting that I think it was a South African interviewer who actually asked me recently, um, referring to exactly what you're talking about, did I ever have any kind of therapy? Um, and my answer was no, I never have had any. Um, whether, obviously, I think these uh, historic issues and problems and obstacles and harassment and all that, that there was at the time do have their effect. Um, and I think just shortly after I finished writing the book, and also, funnily enough, the day it was published, I had a kind of meltdown. And I think that was kind of a delayed PTSD um, after all those years, because there have been so many decades, um, and especially, obviously, in the, in the 70s and the 80s, when, when times were really tough. Um, so I think, yes, myself and many other staff members, except especially the brave you know, group who started the paper with me, um, I think we've had to dig deep, and, and as to your question as to how one sort of continued, why we did it, were there moments, of course, that we thought, what the heck are we doing, um, is absolutely true, but I don't know whether I'm just unordinarily stubborn, or but it was always a case of one obstacle after another, and I always use the analogy of when I was a kid, with the parents at the beach as a, as a very young child, and I'd sort of stand on the in, edge of the waves, and a, a wave, probably a fairly little one, because I was small, would come and sort of knock me over, and I'd get up spluttering with sand in all orifices, and that would happen time and again, and I think I'm going to be able to swim one day. And, and I think that's kind of the, the way I approached what was happening in those days, that I thought I can't be defeated, I can't let fear kind of be the end of me. Um, and so it was really a case of stubbornness, gritting my teeth and really feeling I was doing the right thing that got me through. When you get to the point of independence um, in 1990 in the book, um, it's obviously a cause for celebration. Um, uh, to some extent, you know, the immediate objective of the newspaper um, had been met. Um, but um, I was struck by a, a passage in the book where you describe standing outside the old SKW building in the centre of Windhoek, um, I think around the time or just after independence, uh, watching people arrive for a reception which you weren't invited to. And there were the liberators, you know, the leading figures of Swapo at the time, going into the building, some uh, international figures and also, um, you know, some of the people who had uh, been on the opposite side and had played uh, major roles in actually obstructing independence, uh, opposing uh, those who were campaigning for independence and, and even themselves, you know, 
people involved in approving and actually um, yeah, making making sure that human rights abuses took place. So, and it, it reminded me a little bit of the end of uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm, where the revolutionaries. Um, who, who've taken over the farm start to actually change physically and, and look like the original oppressors who, who owned the farm. And, um, you know, obviously one can sense there a little bit of trepidation and disappointment, even in uh, 1990, about what the future might hold. And here we are, you know, 31 years later. Um, I wondered how you felt um, Namibia has done in general and where we might have, uh, you know, done well and made progress, but also you know, what have been the, the low points uh, uh, in terms of those expectations back in 89, 1990? Yeah, the incident that, that you actually referred to, Graham, was in fact the Independence Banquet, um, just the, the, the night after um, Independence Day. And yeah, it was kind of a reality check for me. I went down there because I was curious, of course, to see who was going in with the, with the SWAPO leadership. And of course, it was all... Those people, even whites from Namibia here, who had sort of opposed uh, a swapo in bone and marrow for all those years, who kind of walked together now on the carpet. Um, and it was kind of a reality check, but it also, I think, leads to a time later in my journalistic career, which I think I also examine in the book, where it is that sometimes I had to examine my own feelings at that point and think the piece was called from the outside looking in. And I had to try and examine whether I, in fact, was feeling the way I was feeling because I was hurt because I hadn't been invited to the independence banquet or whether it was just kind of a, a, a feeling of things to come. Um, and, and, and I did come to the conclusion that in actual fact, I, I wasn't disappointed um, not to have been invited to the banquet. And I think it leads to the role of the journalist, as uh, the good journalist, I should add, as a fairly solitary figure um, that one never really or should get too close to power um, and that there's always a little distance, there should be a little bit of distance in order to, to do one's best work and to be able to really operate independently. Um, so I think it, it, it made way for that revelation, if you like. And of course, yes, Namibia... Sam Nyoma did tell me in an interview many years ago that he did want Namibia to be the first success story in Africa. And I think we all acknowledge today that hasn't in fact happened. Um, clearly, the fact that we got rid of apartheid, uh, that we have a good constitution, that we've had relative peace, except for obviously uh, issues like the Caprivi insurrection, um, and other incidents since independence, and obviously some anti-human rights attitudes that still persist. But generally speaking, obviously, there has been a huge improvement in a number of areas, but again, also a number of disappointments that we really haven't exercised um, those pre-independence sentiments for human rights, equality, and justice to their full potential. Also that Namibia, as a country which leads the continent, at the moment in terms of press freedom, isn't using its muscle on an international stage to agitate uh, for a better deal for journalists and for press freedom on the continent and further afield. So yes, there's always those mixed emotions about what we've done, what we could have done better, and how we can, obviously it's up to the youth going forward, largely speaking, 
to really change Namibia for the best and make it a really good place to be for the majority of its people. That was always my personal dream, and, and I'd love to see it uh, uh, happen uh, before my demise, put it that way. Right. Um, you know, after independence, the Namibian you know, faced a few uh, difficult issues. Um, well, perhaps the most difficult being, you know, how to survive uh, economically. Um, and a lot of South African newspapers and publications didn't actually get through that period um, of the early 90s. Right. Um, and then secondly, of course, the, the other issue, which perhaps wasn't so difficult to deal with, was, you know, that a lot of people, particularly the Swapo comrades, expected the Namibian to become the Swapo newspaper, um, to reflect the ruling party um, and, the, and the government's sort of positions and to be not so critical. And in fact, the newspaper fairly, fairly quickly became quite critical and I think started exposing uh, various um, uh, corruption scandals and uh, um, issues where governments seem to be wasting money. I mean, I remember the Falcon jet right. being bought and, you know, the boreholes being uh, drilled on ministers' uh, land and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I just wondered on the twin issues, I mean, how did the Namibian actually manage to get through those years economically and actually begin to thrive and do well, certainly by the mid to late 90s? Uh, and then also, how, how did you deal with that independent, independence issue, the independence of the newspaper? Right. The uh, I mean, as you know, Graham, because you were probably with us um, not long after independence on the Namibian, but but those were not easy days. The the sort of transition to political independence um, and to have survived um, the, all the threats against the newspaper to actually witness independence was one thing, but the actual fight uh, for polit for financial sustainability, I think, was far more difficult. And we. Obviously, going through that transition from donor funding to, to self-sufficiency uh, was a really tough battle. And many, many newspapers in Southern Africa didn't survive, but we did. I think um, it was due to a number of factors. I think, again, um, a, a really dedicated complement of staff who understood that um, certain things had to be put to the side uh, as we tried to uh, become financially viable. Um, again, there was help from time to time from donors uh, just to get us through. But eventually, I think through lean and mean and not paying huge salaries and things like that, we did make it through, which I think was, was, was a huge victory, um, certainly for independent press in Namibia. And it's ironic that after independence and that survival and the, the Namibian doing very well over the years has again reached another uh, kind of... Um, crossroads, if you like, in terms of which um, traditional media, newspapers, the world over, uh, are now really facing a serious battle for survival. So now, again, uh, we all have to kind of put shoulders to the wheel and to try and ensure that good journalism, at least, survives and thrives. And I'd like to see it happen in the newspaper context, at least. I mean, I come from an era of what they call hot lead um, and uh, I've, the black and white era where we had no color in newspapers. And today, obviously, we're able to do far more. And I would love to see good journalism uh, survive in a written format. Um, and, and that challenge is really upon us now.
And in terms of the newspaper's independence, I mean, you you make clear in the book that that was always a key issue to you, not you know, from 1985 onwards. And you you sort of um, reject the idea that although there were shared aims, um, uh, the newspaper definitely wasn't representing um, Swapo at the time. But um, how difficult was it to sort of move to a position where the, the newspaper was critical of, you know, in a way, the more ordinary politics that followed after independence and, and the ruling party? Um, and and uh, was that a straightforward thing or was it a, a difficult one to tackle? Um, I think it was probably difficult emotionally at times, Graham, but just to hark back to the actual founding uh, trust document um, of the Namibian, where we basically declared that the ethos was for the Namibian to remain an independent newspaper, as it was prior to independence, although, as you've pointed out, there were kind of um, commonalities, if, if that's the right word, between our struggle for the implementation of the settlement plan for Namibia, for the chance for Namibians to exercise their own self-determination, and we were in the same viewpoint as Swapo. We were, of course, also exposing the atrocities happening under the jackboot of, of apartheid. And that obviously also, um, to a large degree, was, was, had resonance with uh, the liberation movement. But post-independence, I recall the staff and myself all sitting down and saying, look, where to from now? Uh, what are people expecting from us? What do we need to change? What do we need to do differently? And I think the resolve then was clear that the newspaper's role as an independent institution would be to speak truth to power. Whatever government was in, in, in the seats of power at the time, we had to hold them to account. Uh, the great struggle for Namibia now having achieved political independence was economic independence, really, for all its people to enjoy life to the fullest, to have at least the basics um, we kept reminding ourselves Namibia is a huge country with a relatively small population and it really should be possible for everybody to have food on the table, a roof over their heads uh, and things like that. And I think that is the dream, that is the goal um, towards which uh, our journalism should be targeted. And so we resolved just to remain independent and that meant that, yes, almost from the outset, um, we told the Swapo government that we wouldn't be holding back. Many thought our job was done. And I remember late Hidipo Hamutenya saying to me when they offered me a post in, in the first independence cabinet, Gwen, your job is done now. You can, you can relax. You can look forward to a better salary and a decent car. And I remember laughing at Hidipo and saying that I think you're trying to neutralize me. And I really don't want to go into government, into politics. I prefer my role in journalism, and I will continue as I have always done. At the start of the book, um, and this is going to be the last question, um, you um, feature or mention the famous Margaret Mead quote about how a small group of committed people can change the world. Uh, in many ways, I think that has been the story of the Namibian and, and probably continues to be today in the way that the newspaper has an impact on Namibian politics and social life and, you know, by revealing things like um, fish rot and, and human rights abuses and, and so on. Um, but obviously, times have changed a lot. And these days, we have these demagogic 
political leaders who use disinformation to whip up support amongst large groups of people that can sway election results. Right. Um, and uh, I just believe, I once wondered how much you still um, believe in, in, the, in the Margaret Mead quotation. Um, and how do you see the future playing out, um, particularly, you know, in terms of Namibian journalism? Are you optimistic about the future in, in view of all the challenges and difficulties that we are facing at the moment? Well, you know, Graham, I, after decades in journalism, I think the one thing that one does learn is you pick up a lot about what I would call the human condition, regardless of who we are, where we are, what tribe we are, what color we are, um, uh, that they are good and bad people. And I know it sounds very simplistic and naive, um, but this is why this Margaret Mead quote has always had resonance with me. It's always tough for anybody standing up against a majority and saying this is wrong, uh, we need to do things better. Um, and so I found in that quote, I think, inspiration in my early days of going into journalism and facing all the obstacles I did face, that I thought, you know, if you're going to go out, go out fighting for the right thing. I still believe in that today, and I really do think um, that people do need to stand up who believe in, in justice and equality and honesty and all those good things. Um, and equally, I think it applies to, to journalism. You know, when we look at the, at the business of journalism today, we realize that uh, there are many people who are doing it because it's just a job. Uh, for, me, for me, it never was that. I've always seen journalism, and I said to someone the other day, as a kind of unelected public service. Um, that's what it's about. You don't go into journalism to make a lot of money. You don't go into journalism to make yourself popular. And often you're a fairly isolated figure if you're doing the right thing and holding truth to power. But I think on an optimistic note, I think there are enough good young people out there today to make that difference that Margaret Mead refers to um, and to bring back, if you like, the power of journalism in the lives of the people. If I think back to the early days of the Namibian, where people were hungry for that newspaper because they wanted the truth about what was happening in their country under apartheid, how do we get it back to those days when, when people really believed that journalists made a difference, that speaking truth to power made a difference? And today, of course, we have to take on the might of the internet and social media and the disinformation that proliferates to cut through all that crap, if I may use the word, and bring it back to good journalism and the difference that it can and should make in the lives of the people. What you're saying, of course, reminds me that the book is um, more than just a history, that it's actually an inspirational book. And uh, certainly that's something that I took from it. Um, I think at, at quite a few key points in the book, it feels like you've feel, reached the end of the road and there's, there's possibly no way of uh, uh, picking things up and moving on, and yet you do find a way, I mean, particularly, obviously, in 1984-85, when you started the Namibian, uh, uh, progressing and actually um, doing something which has a real impact, makes a real difference in the lives of, of people. Um, so, I, I, you know, just as a, on a personal note, I, uh, having worked with you for a number of years, I would uh, urge people to, to read the book, not just from the historical angle, because it is 
inspirational and it shows what is needed to to make things better in the world um but just lastly i mean obviously hopefully we piqued people's interest and uh, got, got people to think that about uh, getting hold of the book so how can people actually um buy the book uh, you know in in namibia but also um you know online if they can order it online and so on do you have details on that uh, Graham, uh, just generally speaking, I think it's relatively easy to, to get online through Amazon or, or other online uh, ordering uh, companies. Um, it's, you know, sad to me in a way. I, I don't want to read a book online. I prefer to have the physical hard copy in my hands. And I'm sorry that the book isn't more accessible further afield than just South Africa and Namibia right now, but I'm sure that will happen in future because it's very expensive to order a hard copy. Um, so I'm hoping in time that the publishers will make it more easily available over, uh, you know, overseas and so on, where there is also quite a lot of interest. Um, but for now, I think there are a number of obviously bookstores in Vintook and in South Africa that are stocking it. I, it's, it's still early days, so I, I'm sure people will be able to get a copy and as you say, at the end of the day, I'm just hoping for nothing else other than really, hopefully, that the, the youth who do read it and maybe the new edited version of the book makes it a little more accessible to youth who are not perhaps too keen on reading these days in that they may be inspired in their own lives and in whatever they do to, to, to make a change for the better. Thanks very much, Gwen. And, and just remi a reminder to all the listeners that the book is called Comrade Editor. Um, it is available uh, in bookshops and online. So please go out and, and get it or um, search online and you'll easily find um, Amazon or somewhere else where you, you can also order it. Um, but thanks very much, Gwen. Thank you, Graham, because you, I would like to thank you personally because you're another person who whether it's acknowledged or not, is someone who really has always wanted to make a difference and does make a difference in the kind of work that you do. So kudos to you as well, and thank you for being there through many of these years. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.